BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Alexis Madrigal. You know that feeling on your first day of a new job? You worry that everyone knows you're a fraud. In any minute, they're going to call you out. Someone else should have gotten this gig. Anyone but you is more qualified. Or maybe a nagging sense of self-doubt follows you everywhere. It's all kind of smoke and mirrors. At every corner, you're convinced you'll fail. We'll talk about why people are haunted by imposter syndrome and what you can do about it. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. Every time the producers on this show ask me to sub as a guest host, I think, this is the time they're going to see my true colors. This time, I'm going to freeze. My mind is going to go blank. Because I'm plagued by imposter syndrome. And not just in this role, but every day as a health reporter at KQED. I'm a journalist, not a doctor. I'm not an expert. On today's show, we will talk about why a lot of people feel like they're faking it, the forces at play, and what we can do about imposter syndrome. We're joined today by Leslie Jameson. She's an author and essayist. She wrote the recent New Yorker piece, Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It, about imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon. And Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, she's a psychologist and the co-author of Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. Leslie, I want to start with you. Why did you write about this topic right now in The New Yorker? Uh, first of all, it's great to be here. I'm so thrilled to be talking with Jody Ann and Lisa as well. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I have had my own feelings of what uh, we often call imposter syndrome, where I felt like, oh, if I you know, say the wrong thing in this grad school seminar, everyone will understand that I don't understand the first thing about theory that I like, am, you know, I'm only a 10th as smart as everybody else in the room. Like I've, I've had that feeling, but even more than having had it myself, I have just felt the saturation of this concept in people that I know people that I speak to. It's such a it's such a common reference point for trying to describe a particular kind of anxiety, not just a general sense of self-doubt, I think, but really this feeling of having pretended to be something more than what you are somehow, you know, and that you'll be that fear of being found out. Um, But I think the real impetus for wanting to explore the phenomenon and its history a little bit more deeply came from a 
conversation that I had where I was sort of confessing some feelings of imposter syndrome in my uh, experience of grad school. And the woman I was speaking to, another academic, uh, said to me, um, she said, you know, that's such a white, that's such a white lady thing to say. And um, in that moment, I don't even think she did it in a particularly hostile way. But in that moment, I started to think, right, like there's a whole story here around who feels this way, what are the larger forces contributing to what we have decided to call this feeling and 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 how could I try to map that kind of larger constellation of forces all underneath this single phrase? Well, we will we will map all of it uh, in in today's hour. But first, let's just go back to the original history. Where did that concept, imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome, where did it come from and when? So uh, the the idea was first coined by two female psychologists in a paper that they published in 1978 called The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women, Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. The two psychologists were, one was a professor at Oberlin College and one was a colleague in the area, Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Um, And they called it the imposter phenomenon. And they were trying to describe a set of feelings that they noticed in a lot of women they had spoken to. Um, We can talk about (laughs) that sample of women and uh, the ways in which it was limited. But um, it was very important to them that uh, that term phenomenon rather than syndrome. And uh, they, I I think, have experienced a lot of frustration in the 50 years since about the ways that in which it's kind of more widespread cultural saturation has definitely happened under the under the name syndrome, but they called it the imposter phenomenon. They published that paper and it really started to spread something about the idea resonated for a lot of people. Um, but it began there in 1978. And just so we understand, uh, Lisa, this is not a technical syndrome, as we would maybe say in the DSM or something like that, correct? Yes, it's not a diagnosable condition. You can't be diagnosed with it. It's, it is considered a phenomenon, sort of occurrence worthy of note. Got it. So Leslie, back to you, just because I want to kind of go forward in, in the history. How did how did this idea, I mean, I imagine that paper really rang true with a lot of people. How did imposter syndrome sort of run and, and kind of take off into popular culture? Yeah, so my my understanding and and uh, I think Dr. Imes and Dr. Clance's understanding was that in those early years, starting with that 1978 publication, they were getting they were they're finding a lot of traction in the psychology community and they got you know dr clance told me a story about how the guy who worked the photocopier machine at her offices was always asking her like who are all these copies for because she would get all these personal requests for more copies of the paper you know people wanted to read it people had heard about it the idea was spreading but still sort of in that kind of limited almost like a a, a zine or something like that i think it was really uh, the the rise of social media in the early aughts and beyond that kind of changed the scale of cultural saturation from like an idea that had a fair amount of circulation within that community to something that was like can feel in certain worlds like it's just on everybody's tongue. I think social media was like an important leveraging force in that way. 
Got it. Well, Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, again, she's, she's with us. She just answered that question right before you, Leslie. She's a psychologist and the co author of Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self Doubt, and Succeed in Life. Give us a sense of, of what's happening here psychologically, Lisa. Yeah, so imposter syndrome is the experience when you are credentialed, accomplished, successful, and yet haven't internalized those feelings. And as a result of not internalizing those feelings, you can feel like you're a fraud. So any mistake you make, any error you make is is some kind of revelation of that fraud. So in order to cover up that feeling of fraudulence, you tend to either overwork or self-sabotage as a response to that performance anxiety. And then when you receive a performance review, either have trouble accepting the positive feedback that's coming your way, or if there's any kind of constructive feedback, you hyper-focus on that and get caught into this imposter syndrome cycle. And if you don't deal with it, if people sort of stay in this cycle, what are some of the ramifications that can unfold in your life? Yeah, so there's been a lot of really interesting research on the impact of imposter syndrome on your actual life. So uh, it finds that you can tend to be more organizationally loyal, tend to have uh, greater anxious feelings, tend to have greater psychological distress. There's a lot of really significant mental health outcomes that are related to it, as well as outcomes for your career and your professional life and the way that you show up in the world. And how has it, I imagine if you are focusing it on it in your, your practice, that it probably haunted you at some point. What is your imposter syndrome tale? Yes, yeah, so I've probably experienced imposter syndrome my whole life through graduate school, and it probably worsened when I was in my PhD program. And I remember the first day of my PhD program, I was sitting with my classmates. There were like five of us in our cohort. And everyone was so accomplished. They were way older than me. They had done so much. And I remember walking out of that room at the end of the day and my mentor was outside and I said to him, I think I don't belong here. And he said, we're about to find out. And I remember feeling like, oh, he's not even sure that I belong here. And so I remember the, the, the vast majority of my doctoral career was trying to prove that I did belong there and that I was good enough to be there. And it, it trailed me into my first jobs until I finally decided I was going to really deal with it head on and really make a change in my own life. And Leslie, a lot of what you write about, and in, in, historically, this has really focused this idea of imposter syndrome, we've talked about around women. Why is it that we've focused on it in women? Is it only women that suffer from imposter syndrome? Um, yeah, so I think that the the, the original framing of the imposter phenomenon, as Clance and Imes understood it, was that the the internal feelings, the pattern of internal feelings that they was trying that they were trying to map was pro- was produced by external forces, and the two external kinds of external forces that they focused on most fully were early like childhood familial dynamics. So the ways in which maybe you came to feel not quite good enough because you were always being compared to um, a a sibling who had been deemed like the smart one or uh, a set of gender scripts that were sort of constantly making women, even as Dr. Obey Austin was saying, like, you know, very credentialed, accomplished, uh, successful women made them feel like lesser than or not good enough. And so I think it's like that there's nothing, there's nothing about the psychological experience that is only something available to women, but the prevalence of gender scripts that have, you know, historically made women feel less than men in all kinds of ways and simply treated them differently than men, given them less access to opportunities and resources 
that's part of what creates the gender divide. Now, there are a whole lot of other external forces at play, and Jody Ann can speak to this as well, beyond familial dynamics and gender scripts, which are the ones that the original authors chose to focus on. But I think that's part of why uh, gender came into the focus in their framing. And Lisa, is it? do you find that most of the people who are seeing you in your private practice are women or are men coming in as well seeking help for how to deal with this? Yeah, so... Predominantly, I do see largely women, but I want to also say that, you know, while the concept was initially studied with women, about 10 years later, they started to look at it with men. And since then, there has been no conclusive research to suggest that women experience it more than men. It's been very equivocal. Whether men seek out the help for it may be another story, um, but I think it's a really important um, piece to note that, that that this is no longer believed to be the truth, that in essence, both gender expressions experience imposter syndrome. It may look different in the expression of it, but it is it is pretty clearly known in the literature that, that it's not a, a woman's issue. We're talking about imposter syndrome, those pretty intense feelings of self-doubt that haunt you, that sense that you're a fraud at work, maybe school, maybe in your personal life. We're joined by Leslie Jameson. She's an author and essayist. She wrote the recent New Yorker piece, Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It, about imposter phenomenon, also known, as we've said, imposter syndrome. Also, Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin. She's a psychologist and the co-author of Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. And we're bringing in more guests after the break. And we want to hear from you. Have you ever felt like a fraud at work or school? Or maybe you're struggling with imposter syndrome currently? Tell us your story or maybe get some advice from our experts about how to get out of that cycle. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or shoot us an email, your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org. Or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. And we're talking about imposter syndrome, those pretty intense and feelings of self-doubt that haunt you, that sense that you're a fraud at work or school or in your personal life. We're joined by Jody Ann Bury, a writer and speaker. She's the co-author of a Harvard Business Review article titled Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. And Leslie Jameson, who's an author and essayist, she just wrote a recent New Yorker piece titled Why Everyone Feels Like They're Fake. It. And Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, she's a psychologist and the co-author of Own Your Greatness. And Jody Ann, I want to talk about this uh, article that went viral in the Harvard Business Review titled "Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome." Uh, why should we stop? Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm really excited to be joined by the other guests today. Um, I think, you know, we spoke to in the last segment that though the imposter phenomenon was originally seen as specifically a women's issue, you know, there's been a lot of conversation and research that is not something that is exclusive, exclusively felt by women. Um, maybe the research shows that, but I still think that our cultural narrative understands this to be something specifically experienced by women in the workplace or in other areas of our lives. And I also feel like the idea of imposter syndrome is so pathologizing that even in the title of that, that often that women are told that they are experiencing imposter syndrome, maybe that's not what's going on at all. And I also feel like it makes it such an individualistic um kind of experience versus looking at the environment that may trigger or flare imposter syndrome feelings, um, particularly in the workplace. And what are some, what would happen sort of, you know, systemically at the workplace that would, would, would be at play here? Yeah. So, you know, the data is clear that women, particularly women of color, particularly Latinx women are drastically underpaid for the same work. Um, the general treatment in the workplace being interrupted or having your contributions undermined, um, having just increasing challenges and getting your foot in the door, having to prove yourself more than other people do. You know, I've had people who've reached out to me to do speaking engagements or workshops with them. Um, even though they were the ones who contacted me, they asked me for references. <laughs> they mm. want to see, you know, this kind of extra layer of proof of my expertise, you know, around different topics being judged more harshly. I think the experience of tokenization, for example, can also, you know, trigger flare imposter syndrome feelings. And so you'll see a lot of professionals, you know, particularly professionals of color or women or queer folks who they're most visible or hyper visible in these cultural days or awareness months. You know, we are in Black History Month. And so if people are looking for me to speak on a panel or, you know, to do a keynote talk or go to a professional conference, you know, it can feel like, oh, do you just want me here because I'm Black or I'm a woman? But let's just say I'm an engineer, right? And so when there are leadership opportunities or high visibility opportunities around my technical area of expertise, you know, then maybe I don't get same amount of calls. Um, so I think there's a lot in our workplace culture, microaggressions, um, just different practices that happen more structurally within the environment that can treat some people differently than others. And I think when you internalize that, it makes sense to feel like 
I don't belong here, or I'm not as smart um, as other people here, or my contributions aren't as worthy, even though you might be highly credentialed, if not, you know, more so or over credentialed than your colleagues, you're not treated that way. And Lisa, how do you respond to that? Do you see this as more of an in- internal, individualized sort of struggle? Or do you see this as something that is coming from a, you know the system around us? I see it as a both and situation. So I do think, you know, what is the origin of imposter syndrome? What has been shown in the research is that it is not necessarily um, largely a kind of coming later in life kind of experience that it has an early, early on experience from childhood family dynamics. But these are our first systems. Our families are our first systems. So it's not surprising then later on sort of systemic dynamics become also an issue as well. But I also do think, yes, um, oppressive systems do trigger um, imposter syndrome and they do also benefit from imposter syndrome because typically imposter syndrome causes overwork and overfunctioning. So they're getting a lot more out of an employee than they might get from somebody who's not struggling with imposter syndrome. And so I do think the system and and, um, especially oppressive systems do benefit from it and they do need to take responsibility for creating environments that are safer for people in general, but especially in these cases where they might be benefiting from sustaining this, they need to be be accountable for creating workplaces in which the things that they do are are clearly thought about in regards to this. So I do agree with that piece of it. Leslie, you've written about the fact that sort of our culture, capitalism itself is, is set up to really benefit from imposter syndrome. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, really connecting to but what both of the other guests were speaking to. I mean, I think there's a way that when you feel like not enough, whatever very real external forces have made you feel that way, the fact that you're not getting paid enough, the fact that your performance reviews are being framed differently, um, in addition to all of those psychological factors from your family system onward that might have primed you to feel like not enough wherever it's coming from, that feeling of not being enough is quite profitable to a capitalistic system, both for those reasons of like kind of producing more labor to overcompensate, but also like all the things we reach for inside of capitalism to feel better when we don't feel like enough are kind of, we, we, you know, involve sort of purchasing, overworking. Um, So feelings of insufficiency are, are, I think, quite useful to the operations of that system at large. And um, yeah. Makes sense. Let's bring uh, some listeners into the conversation. Camila, you're on the air in Sebastopol. Hi, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this topic and had a very practical question. Um, I'm trying to get a business off the ground, have suffered and struggled with imposter syndrome no end because my business is based around both academic and professional experience I have. But I constantly return to the question, who do you think you are? to talk with authority about these things or to call yourself an expert. And it's almost paralyzing. And so I'm, you know, like with the practical orientation in mind, what would be like two or three practices or tracking methods to help, you know, someone like me or other people out there struggling to grow a muscle in this area to just feel worthy to do this thing that you know that you're good at. And I get validation. People say, this is great. You need to share this. You need to do this work. And still, it's paralyzing. So um, love to hear your answer off the air. Thank you so much for your work and for sharing this topic. Great question, Camila. Thanks for calling in. Uh, Lisa, you want to take that one? 
Sure. So I think there's a couple things that you can do. And, and, and what it highlights for me too, is about this idea of expert and that expert needs to be perfect. And oftentimes we have this image of expert as untouchable, kind of beyond reproach, knows all the answers. And part of learning how to be expert in your field when you struggle with imposter syndrome is rec recognizing that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. You don't need to be, you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be beyond reproach. People can challenge you, you can be wrong and still be expert and really watching for the perfectionism in the concept of what expert means. The other thing I would suggest is work on internalizing that positive feedback. Oftentimes we are very bad at internalizing positive feedback. We're quick to blow it off, quick to dismiss it or show ways in which it's not completely accurate. So really writing down that feedback really concretely and finding ways to repeat it to yourself and to be able to work on the internalization of that feedback. And I think the other piece is, you know, really working on trying to still do the thing. Don't let it self-sabotage you. Actually keep doing the thing, even with the feelings. You can have the feelings of not being good enough and still go to the pitch meeting. And so being able to do, feel the distress and do the thing. And so I do think that's a really important thing, but I, I, I can totally hear that experience. I, I know it very well. And so like, I hear you, there's another side to it. It's possible to be on the other side to, of it. Alice writes, how does imposter syndrome compare to a basic lack of self-confidence? I look at other women in my field who are confident and I don't feel as confident in my skills as I should. Is that imposter syndrome, Lisa? So, I mean, the what we've talked about um, throughout both segments is that, that it's a constellation of things. It's not just self-doubt. Um, self-doubt, everyone feels at times, but it, uh, it is self-doubt compounded by things like perfectionism, uh, compounded by feeling like you overestimate others, which you may be doing by thinking everyone else feels so confident, but you don't. Um, by things like uh, looking for constant external validation, intellectual inauthenticity, all of these are features of imposter syndrome that are often not talked about. The self-doubt piece often feels most prominent, but there are many features that go on. And if you can identify with a variety of them, then likely it's imposter. If it's a case of just, just self-doubt, then just it's just self-doubt. It's not imposter syndrome. So really allowing yourself to become more familiar with what it means in its fullness and feeling and kind of identifying whether or not you're, you're seeing more than one of those things. Let's go to Max in Oakland. Max, you're on the air. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm really curious what the guests think of the common adage, fake it till you make it. You know, it's something that I have been told and it's advice that I've also given. And, you know, how does it fit into the big picture? And is it even good advice? Jody Ann, do you want to take that one? Fake it till you make it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't know if I see anything really wrong with that idea. I don't know if I would say fake it. I would just say, you know, do it until it's done. And I want to go back to an earlier uh, caller, Camilla, who talked about uh, paralysis, because I think these ideas are really connected. And so I've actually experienced paralysis, right? I had a spinal surgery, and I remember being with my physical therapist standing at the bottom of a staircase, and she just looked at me like, you know, just walk up the stairs. And I'm looking at her like, this is the easiest thing to do. I don't believe this is the activity today. And I stood at the bottom of the stairs. I put my hand on the railing and my body did not move. And so it's like my brain is telling my body to move and my body is not responding because it cannot get the signal through, you know, all of the trauma physically from the surgery to move my actual body. And so when I think about faking it till you make it or 
this paralysis around kind of how you're moving forward with your business, I really go back to that visceral, you know, experience of my mind is telling me to do something and my body is not following through. And so what rehabilitation looks like in that scenario is to keep sending the signal, keep trying to move that leg to move up the stairs. And your mind will find those pathways to get that signal through. And if you keep doing it over and over, your body will build these kind of new pathways to make sure that um, you're not thinking about it so intensely as you did in the beginning. And so I think that's maybe what sits underneath this idea of faking it until you make it. I would not say fake it. I don't think I'm faking it, right? But what I am doing is I'm just going to keep kind of going at it and build these pathways either within myself or within my process, you know, in how I work in order to kind of get it done. So I would say, you know, do it until it's done just so I don't have to, you know, use this kind of imposter language or faking it language to myself when I know I'm just trying to, you know, achieve a particular goal. Anything you want to add there, Lisa? Yeah, I really hate the saying fake it till you make it. <laughs> um, it is awful. And I think what I see people do is try to fake it till you make it. And they never, ever believe that they're not faking it. Even when they're super senior, even when they have all these accomplishments. I do really believe that it's, you do the best you can in this in this moment to do it. You know, like, like Jody Ann was saying, you're just going to do the thing in the best way you can in this moment. And to recognize that, that that is going to get better over time and stronger over time, but do not disconnect yourself from who you truly are. That is a massive problem. I see a lot of people talking about creating a character to, to, to deal with imposter syndrome. Do not do that. Be your authentic self in this moment and be able to appreciate it, flaws and all. That is really a, a very important piece of overcoming imposter syndrome is really learning to appreciate our humanity at, whether it's, you know, whether it's full of flaws at the time or not, but really learning to kind of sit in that and appreciate it and what it can do. If our listeners can take anything away from today's show, be your authentic self. We're talking about imposter syndrome, those really intense feelings of self-doubt that haunt you, that sense that you're a fraud at work, at school, in your personal life. We're joined by Jody Ann Bury. She's a writer and speaker. She's the co-author of a Harvard Business Review article titled Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. Leslie Jameson, she's an author and essayist. She wrote the recent New Yorker piece, Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It. And Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin. She's a psychologist and the co-author of Own Your Greatness. We want to hear from you. How do you handle those feelings of self-doubt? Maybe you have a story you want to share about how you overcame imposter syndrome. Do you want some advice from our experts? Call us now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org. Or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, we're at KQED Forum. A listener tweets, glad you're addressing the workplace culture. Reason for feeling like an imposter, not just individualizing it as a psychological struggle. Thank you, Jody Ann, for that. And a solution from a listener there's a lot written about having a good mentor, but it really does help. I've had a female bosses who have gone out of their way to offer advice and praise for my work. One reminded me, we hired you. We don't make mistakes. So we think you're right for this job. Uh, Jody ann a question for you. I've noticed in lots of the articles I read prepping for this show that Michelle Obama, Maya Angelou, Sonia Sotomayor um, are all examples of women who have admitted that they have struggled with imposter syndrome 
and they aren't really blaming the system, they're blaming themselves. What do you why do you think they're struggling with imposter syndrome? Yeah, I mean, I will say this. I'm not going to tell Michelle Obama what she can and cannot say about her. <laughs> good point. Good point. You know, I think that, you know, for Michelle Obama, my Angela, all the women that you name, you know, these are women that I look up to. And I think for folks who adopt this idea around imposter syndrome, I am not saying that you cannot use that language to talk about what you're, what you're experiencing. What I will say, though, and how I see this idea about imposter syndrome as something that, to Lisa's point, is beneficial for oppressive systems, the narrative is beneficial as well because it doesn't implicate them in anything. It acts nothing of these systems, our employers, you know, the industries that we're in, the environments that we're in, it acts nothing of that, right? It's to say, hey, you, you have imposter syndrome, you go deal with that over there. And so when they think about public figures and how they talk about their experiences, again, I'm not talking specifically about Michelle or um, Maya Angelou or you know Justice Sonia Sotomayor, but I do think that it is advantageous as a public narrative to talk about imposter syndrome. It It's what I call like these kind of soft entries into talking about these experiences of these toxic environments. Um, and it's harder to have these public conversations about what Michelle Obama, Maya Angelou, you know, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Viola Davis, other high profile women who've, who've talked about imposter syndrome. It is much harder, I think, publicly to say I've experienced intense amount of racism, sexism, um, classism, disregard for my expertise, this idea that I'm just here to fill, quote unquote, affirmative action quotas. It is much harder to engage that conversation publicly. And so, you know, I think the narrative is good as this kind of soft entry conversation, but I don't think that it is the full extent of their experience at all. We're talking about imposter syndrome, those intense feelings of self-doubt, that that sense that you're a fraud at work or at school or in your personal life. Stay with us. We'll, con- we'll continue this conversation after the break. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. And we're talking about imposter syndrome, that sense you're a fraud at work or school, maybe in your personal life. Michelle Obama, Tina Fey, Viola Davis, they've all said they feel like an imposter at times. So it it can plague all of us. We're joined by Jody Ann Bury. She's a writer and speaker. She's also the co-author of a Harvard Business Review article titled Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. Leslie Jameson, she's an author and essayist. She wrote the recent New Yorker piece, Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It. And Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, she's a psychologist and the co-author of Own Your Greatness. And Austin, Austin writes, uh, one of our listeners, I started teaching college at 26, and now I'm almost 36 and still teaching film. From time to time, I experience imposter syndrome. And with my students who are increasingly learning on their own from the internet and the next potentially chatbot, I don't expect these feelings to go away. For me, I think we all put on a mask from day to day, don't we? I think it helps when I let go and separate my work from my life. Uh, Leslie, what do you think? Is tech going to make us all feel like we're imposters? I know our own industry and journalism, I'm I'm really worried about, uh, especially this new generation of chatbots. Yeah, I mean, I guess my, my, the part of that quote, insofar as that a that, that sort of feedback from the listener that that I really hear is, and I think it can apply to tech, but I think it applies more broadly than that too, is like, um, I'm not sure that some version of these feelings will ever go away. Like, I think that there are such important both systemic and individual actions that can be taken to address the uh, an outsized feeling of, of fraudulence. But I, I also think that there's something... I think there's a certain set of feelings that inevitably rises from the fact that like authenticity is, is to, to me at least is a really complicated concept. Like I wish that I could say, Oh, I, I know what my authentic self is and I can claim it. But I feel like selfhood is this really complex, multiple shifting set of performances that we put on that. Yes, of course, like involves ideally connecting with our own desires and capacities as we experience them of also acknowledging that like, it's not like there's some stark binary between like, this is my authentic self. And this is my performing self. Like, life is a series of versions of selfhood that we curate. And of course, we're going to feel some sense of disconnect or discomfort when the way that we present ourselves feels a little bit different than what feels most truthful inside or the ways in which somebody else narrates us back to ourselves uh, kind of disconnects from from how we what we've experienced or what we actually feel. So I also think that part of what was meaningful to me about taking tracing the concept back to its roots as a phenomenon rather than a syndrome was in a way it was like, how can we get curious about a sense of disjunction between a more public facing self and a more interior self rather than kind of immediately reaching to pathologize that disjunction? What about you, Lisa? Do you think, I mean, are you starting to deal at all with with people who are struggling with how tech might, you know, mess with their sense of imposter syndrome or their ability to add something creative or new to to the landscape? No, not really. (laughs) 
Uh, it's, not, it's, it's not a question I've really, I've really heard before, but I do think I've heard the piece around um, masks and wearing masks. And, and that is troubling to me. I, I don't feel like you should feel like you're wearing a mask. Um, you know, yes, we are multiple selves in different arenas. You know, Hazel Marcus talks about the concept of multiple selves and how you connect to different places in different contexts. That's different than feeling like you're wearing a mask and, and potentially being performative. So I, I do think it's really important for people to really be able to discern what that's about and why they feel like they can't be themselves and what's happening there. And with the idea that that there are multiple selves, uh, clearly. But I do also feel like it's really important to, to not feel like the posture you can never get over. Um, we have data and research to show you can get over it. You can be on the other side of it. And a previous caller had said something about mentors, which I think is really important, but it's super important to, distinct, to have a distinction between this, the orientation toward mentors when you have imposter syndrome and the orientation you have toward them when you're in a healthier space. And that is oftentimes when you have imposter syndrome, mentors are used solely for external validation. You did a good job, good, good work. We really have to learn how to have people in our lives that can offer all kinds of things and variety of ways of showing up. Um, and I do think it's really important that we figure out what we need in those relationships and how we show up in those relationships too, um, that they're not just pouring into us when we can't even take in what they're pouring. But I do think it's a really important thing to kind of really challenge this notion that it is impossible to overcome it. Um, and also, I do want to say too, that the system is really important. I believe that our second book is really about the system and how to deal with that. Um, but I also do think like if you really individually want to get over it, don't wait for the system to come save you. Um, mm -hmm. There are individual things that you can do. The research has been extensive over the 40 years, and there's a lot of really concrete things you can do to change the experience and be on the other side of it. Well, if you want some advice from our, our experts, give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Or find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Let's go to Serene in Sunnyvale. Serene, you're on the air. Um, thank you so much for this very important discussion. I have a quick question, and this is regarding mothers who take a break from work. And then when they come back, um, you know, it's very difficult for them to rejoin the workforce, even though they have the education and experience backing them. It's sort of difficult, um, you know, when they come back and they have to readjust to the new environment, maybe new people as well. So would love to hear your take on that. And I'll take the answer offline. Thank you. Lisa? Yeah, so I think one of the common triggers for imposter syndrome is when you're rusty at something, when you haven't done something for a while, so you feel a lot less mastery in it. And so I do think really being able to appreciate the fact that you're going to have a learning curve, even if it's something you've been, you did for 20 years or 30 years, going, coming back to it after a break is going to feel new. And to really tolerate that experience of, of learning again and being new again. We often, when we have an imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome, we struggle with this experience of learning. We want to have mastery over everything and want to feel like we know everything like the back of our hands. And I think it's really important to really allow ourselves to be in a state of learning, not knowing, asking questions. It's very vulnerable, but I think it's a really important part of the process of recovering from imposter syndrome is really allowing yourself to be able to not know, to be new and to really you know, to use, to utilize the people around you and community around you to help you kind of get back up to speed, to, but to allow you, yourself to enjoy that process of, of learning again and being new. And, and even though it can feel threatening and scary to be able to hold that. Let's go to Ming in Mountain View. Ming, you're on the air. Thank you. Uh, 
first of all, thank you for this topic. It's very important. So uh, I have worked in the tech industry for a few years, and I have to say that imposter syndrome is a very, very common and uh, quite impactful uh, thing for, for other tech workers. Uh, so I, I'd love to offer two uh, very quick advice on how to deal with that uh, by yourself. The first one is that uh, always seek for advice, right? So talk to a therapist and talk to your colleagues, talk to even your mom. I remember that, you know, when I had downtimes, right, I just called my mom and I felt really, really good afterwards. And then the second tip is that uh, basically like to get rid of the fear, right? I realized a lot of times when you have you know, imposter syndrome you know, where you, you know, uh, you know, do not function well, it's because you have the fear, right? You are fear of you know, making a mistake. You're, you're, you have fear of, you know, um, making fun of yourself in, some, in front of people. So just tell yourself, right, you know, you are good. You know, everyone can do this. Everyone has to start somewhere. Get rid of that fear. And then, you know, throw yourself in the meeting, you know, express your, your opinions, appear confident. So I think that's actually the key for you to deal with imposter syndrome. So that has worked for me. So I would love to, I would love to share that with the, with the audience. Yeah, thank you. That's it. Thank you so much for sharing, Ming. I want to give a shout out to your mom. I hope she was listening because I'm sure that would make her feel good that you call her for, for advice. I don't know if everyone has that relationship with their mom, but I think it's really good advice to to talk about your feelings. Uh, Jody, Ann, do you have any tips that work for you or any tips uh, that you want to offer folks and who are who are dealing with this or, or maybe feeling it from a systemic uh, way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I, I I'll offer this. I used to work at an organization that was a bit more matrixed. And so no matter what level of seniority you were within the organization, you know, maybe at 10 a.m., um, I am reporting into someone who's more senior than I am for a particular project. Um, but at noon, I'm the lead of that project and maybe someone who is way senior than me, even the president of the organization is reporting to me for that project. And so I think having that experience for a number of years helped me realize, okay, maybe I don't feel really good about my expertise or my contributions at 10 a.m. Maybe I don't feel really good about it at 2 p.m., but I know that at 12 o'clock noon, you know, I am firing on all cylinders. And so I think what's also helpful is when you have these, you know, you're experiencing the imposter phenomenon or your imposter syndrome is being triggered in a particular way to understand what is happening around you, you know, what do those experiences have in common um, and getting a little bit deeper than the surface level of, you know, maybe I'm feeling fear, or I'm feeling anxious or I'm having levels of self-doubt or, you know, I'm doing this high effort coping, you know, overworking to compensate for that feeling of feeling like a fraud. Um, I agree with Lisa in saying that the system will not save you. I absolutely hear that. Um, and I don't think the system will save you at all. But I think what's interesting when we talk about the systems of our workplaces and workplace cultures, that that can be different within an organization, right? Right, different teams or different projects that you're on. And that might be different across um, companies that have a different type of workplace culture that can see you for coming back from an extended break from parenting or can see you from coming back from a disability leave or can see you as you're transitioning into a new scope of work or a new role who have, you know, a type of workplace culture where learning is normal, right? Where collaboration and support from your 
their colleagues is a normal part of that culture. And so I think what we can also do is understand our environments and make decisions for our careers that can get us in environments that best meet meet our strengths and don't have as many imposter syndrome triggers um, that maybe we might be facing in our current work situation. We're talking about imposter syndrome, that sense you're a fraud at work or at school or maybe in your personal life. Folks like Michelle Obama, Tina Fey, Viola Davis, they've all said they feel like or they've they've struggled with imposter, that sense of, of feeling like an imposter at times. And this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. So for more information about how to support KQED, you can go to kqed.org. I'm Leslie McClurg. L- let's bring another caller into the conversation. Uh, Helena in Fremont, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. So I'm a parent lead in private high school. My observation is that this um, post-imposter syndrome is really getting into the teenager group. So because of the, the students in the private school, all of them are very good, no matter academically or outside actual curriculum. But because of that, they are all kind of comparing and competing with the peers or in with the students who are really doing a great job. So in many cases, I find no matter my kid or all her peers are having the self-doubt, am I good enough? Why I don't have achievement I want to have? So it, this is really getting into lots of teenagers. So I want to get expert opinion on as a parent leader or as a coach, how can I help the kids? Lisa? Yeah, so what you're pointing to is a really common experience. It's been talked about in the research about when you struggle with imposter syndrome, how difficult it can be to connect with peers because peers serve as a competition source. And so I do think as a parent lead, one of the things that could be really helpful is helping them learn how to be vulnerable with each other, not only talk about what they're doing well, but also talk about what they're struggling with and learn to connect with people across competition. That is a really hard thing to do because um, oftentimes they feel, it's like a, what they call a compare and despair. So you compare yourself against someone else and you feel pretty dis- desperate about it. Teaching them how to really learn how to potentially utilize each other's strengths, to help each other's weaknesses, learn how to collaborate across competition, which I think can be a really helpful lesson that each that the other people around them are not are not enemies or or enemy combatants. They are actually their support system, and so really teaching them as an adult how to kind of do that in a way that's collaborative and supportive, and doesn't kind of stoke each other's imposter syndrome. So I do think that's a really important thing to teach, because it's super difficult um, when you have imposter syndrome to to connect with peers because you often feel like they're direct competition. And so I think teaching that can be very very helpful to them, and especially for their future too. Chris writes, I experienced imposter imposter phenomenon at my first few medical staff meetings as a newly graduated family nurse practitioner. Even though I trained at the facility, I joined at the facility I joined to sit in a meeting with people I hadn't worked with was terrifying. As an RN, I knew my place, but as an equal, it was a whole new ball game. And I was constantly wondering what I was doing there. Once I had something to add to the discussion, it got better and I found my footing. I've definitely had that experience in new jobs. Another listener writes, I'm a gay black man working in a white female dominated industry where I'm the only male of color on the executive team and one of two black males in a department of 150 plus people. I sense that imposter syndrome for me also interacts with perfectionism because in addition to faking it until I make it, 
Embracing perfectionism is where I'm able to establish some sense of professional security, even though there are several downsides. Can your guests comment on how to address the intersection of imposter syndrome and perfectionism? Any thoughts there, Lisa? Yes, a ton. Um, so I think, you know, the, 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 in dealing with imposter syndrome, one of the things you have to really do is contend with your perfectionism. Oftentimes we feel that the perfectionism has gotten us to where we are in this moment. And perhaps, you know, some of the pieces of it have, but there are a lot of detrimental pieces to perfectionism. For example, um, feeling like nothing is ever good enough, um, often comparing yourself to others that are, you know, that may not be the direct comparison points um, to feel like you're not good enough. So really challenging this idea of, you know, the good enough, what is good enough instead of perfect or the best? How do we learn how to be good enough and still be excellent? Um, because I do think it really does, doesn't allow for the humanity and, and development. And, and one of the other things I want to point out too, is that one of the, one, another key trigger for imposter syndrome is being an only. So being one of your identity group in a situation can also be triggering. So one other thing you should potentially be doing is looking for other people along your identity lines that, that are in a similar place so you can build community with them. It's really important. We talk about the double impact of imposter syndrome. And the double impact is when you are experiencing imposter syndrome internally and then externally you're getting communications that you don't belong, you're not good enough. One, the research shows that one of the best predictors and support of that changing is to develop community along those identity lines. So community becomes so important to not feeling alone and to not feel like you have to be perfect or the representative of your identity groups in a perfect fashion and you actually have support to do that. And so that's what I would, I would suggest. Well, Michelle tweets, the reason why so many people suffer from imposter phenomenon is because they are gaslit by toxic employers and our educational institutions. I think that it, uh, that's very underlined by, by your work, Jody Ann. We've been talking about imposter syndrome, and we've been joined by Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin. She's a psychologist and the co-author of Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. Jody Ann Bury, she's a writer and speaker. She's the co-author of a Harvard Business Review article titled Stop Telling women they have imposter syndrome. And Leslie Jameson, she's an author and essayist. She wrote in the recent New Yorker piece, Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It. It's about imposter phenomenon, also known as imposter syndrome. Definitely pick it up. It's a great read. Thank you so much for joining us this hour. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum ahead with Mina Kim. You won't want to miss it. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.